Welcome back, U.S. history fans. Today, we're going to be talking about the stock market crash. Get it? Because that was a crashing sound. I'm sorry. I hope your eardrums are okay after that. Anyhow, let's talk about the stock market and then the inevitable crash of the stock market. All right. So we're going to be talking about buying on margins. So now if you remember way back when we talked about, I think it was our industrialization unit, we talked about how businesses were allowing people to invest in that business. And you could buy shares or parts of you know stock in that company. So anyhow, the way the stock market works is I say, okay, here you go, uh, company, we'll, we'll say Nintendo. All right, I have money invested in Nintendo, so full disclosure here. Hopefully not after today. I'm, I'm, I'm planning on selling today. I'm actually watching it. Anyhow, so we have this company of Nintendo, and I give them $100. And I said, hey, Nintendo, I'd like a little piece of your company. Here's $100. Take my $100, invest in your company, do some awesome things with my $100, and maybe eventually you'll pay me back the original $100 I gave you, and maybe a little bit more because... I gave you money and you used it to invest. Now, if that company doesn't do very well, then I don't really make much money on my investment. If anything, I might lose money on my investment. So, anyhow, during this time, people would buy parts of a company through shares or stocks. Now, if you didn't have money, remember the 1920s, buy now, pay later, you could actually do that with the stock market, and it was called buying on credit. So if a piece of a company costs $10 for one piece, and I only have $10, I can only buy one piece, okay? If I want to buy 10 pieces, it's going to cost me $10 each. That would be $100. So it costs $100 to buy 10 shares or 10 pieces of this company. Okay, so if one of those $10 pieces goes up by $7, it now costs $17 to buy one of those shares or pieces of that company. Well, that means that each of my $10 shares have gone up by $7. So 7 times 10, that's $70 in profit. So the idea is the more of a company you own, if that company does well, you make more money. So the whole idea is buy more of a company, you have the ability to make more in profit. You also have the ability to lose more, which we'll be getting into. So bottom line, if I have one piece of a company and it goes up by $7, I make $7 in profit. If I have 10 pieces of a company and each of those 10 pieces goes up by $7, I make $70 in profit. Well, I want to own more of a company. So banks come along and say, hey, you want to buy more of a company? We'll help you. How about this? You give us 10% down and we'll give you the rest. So I want to borrow $100, all I have to do is give them 10 bucks. I then take that $100 that I borrowed from the bank, put it into the stock market, and make $7 of profit on each of those 10 shares. So now all of a sudden, now I've made $70 total in profit. All right, I pay back that original $100, that $7 in profit is all mine. Okay, so, and that I made that $70 from only using $10 of my own money, okay? Think of it on a bigger scale. I put in $100 to a bank, they give me 1,000, I invest that $1,000 in the stock market, that stock goes up by $700, I pay back the original 1,000, I've made $700 in profit, and all it cost me was $100. Now, do you think people did this 
Oh, yeah, says the Kool-Aid man. So a lot of people are making lots of money in the stock market. And we're going to talk about how this affects the stock market here in a little bit of, of people like buying, buying, buying with borrowed money. Now, there was other ways to get money for the stock market. One of the ways was collateral. And collateral is an item of value that the borrower agrees to forfeit to the lender if the borrower cannot repay the loan. Think of it like this. If you've ever gone bowling and you want to get bowling shoes from, from them, you know, you give them, you know, five bucks or whatever to rent these bowling shoes. Well, those bowling shoes are like a hundred bucks a piece or something like that for the sake of argument. What's to stop you from walking off with their bowling shoes? Well, you have to give them something. Uh, some places you have to give them one of your shoes or you they hold on to your credit card or your driver's license. Usually it's your driver's license or, or a shoe so that they know that you will pay them back because you want to get your shoe back or your driver's license back. So as how this worked in the stock market, sometimes people would pledge items like their house and say, hey, my house is worth $100,000. Give me a $100,000 loan to put in the stock market. If I don't pay you back, you get to keep my house. And some people even told banks, hey, if you give me this money, I know I'm going to win. This is a great stock. I'm going to make tons of money. How about I give you some of the earnings that I know I'm going to make? So bottom line, there was a lot of kind of shady practices going on in this time. And 10%, especially with that buying on margin, was just such a small amount of money. And people just you know, we're buying stocks willy-nilly out there, and a lot of money was changing hands, and this is going to come back to bite people big time here, just in a few moments, at least momentarily with podcast time. All right, so we're leading up to October 29th, 1929, when the stock market crashed, but before we get there, people saw no reason to worry about the stocks. The stock market was killing um, just, you know, killing it out there and kicking butt. It was called a bull market, a period of rising stock prices. So everything is just on the up and up. People are buying, 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 making tons and tons of money. And one of the ways that people gauged how well the stock market was doing was with the Dow Jones Industrial Average, an average of stock prices of major industries. And it had climbed to 191 points. Um, and then Hoover's inauguration on March 4th, 1929, and had risen another 122 points. So it is just going up, up, and up. This, um, the news agency, which we've talked about news before and sensationalized the news, stock market news was dominating. All right, everyone's talking about how the stocks are going up. Well, when you start talking about the stocks going up, it actually kind of forces them to go up. It would be like um, a new movie comes out and everyone talks about how awesome it is. Well, then everyone goes to see it. Well, guess what? The profits of that movie are going to go up just because people are talking about it and wanting to go see that movie. The same thing happened with the stock market. Everyone's talking about these stocks, so then people go out and buy the stocks. When people go out and buy the stocks, the stocks go up. All right, but going back to that movie analogy, all right, it turns out that movie's no good. Well, then guess what happens to the DVD sales down the road? They go down. It's the same thing with the stock market. It initially is going up, but after a while, people figure out that the stock is not very good. So then all of a sudden, the DVD sales or whatever that stock, it just goes down. So greed and corruption were sadly rampant on the stock market floor during this period of time. So, all right. Now, getting close to the stock market crashing here, Wednesday, October 23rd, the Dow Jones Industrial Average 
closed with a drop in 21 points in an hour. That is a huge drop in a very short amount of time. But the stock market closed, so we don't know. Maybe it was going to go back up. So then the following day, on Thursday, people were really worried that the stocks were going to go down further, so they started to sell their stocks. Well, when they started to sell their stocks, it's, it's supply and demand. There's a huge supply because everyone's getting rid of their personal supply, so that caused the stocks to go down. General Electric, GE, went from $400 a share down to $283 a share. There was around $3 billion in loss or paper loss during this time. Well, the banks started to panic. So a group of bankers got together, got a whole bunch of money that they had from their banks, which when it's not really their money, it's you know civilians, it's our money. So they started to buy stock. All right, they created an artificial demand. And when there's high demand, prices go up. So this stabilized the stock market for a few days. But then by Monday, the prices started to fall again. And then finally, on Tuesday, October 29th, 1929, sometimes known as Black Tuesday, people started to get their money out of the stock market. So people are like, oh my gosh, it's going to go down. Let's get our money out. But by taking their money out, it causes the stock market to go down even further. And a record 16.4 million shares or pieces of a company were sold. Just to give you a little idea, on average, it's around 4 to 8 million. So we're talking double the highest average. And this was known as the stock market collapse or the great crash. And nothing could seem to stop it. It went on through November. By November 13, the Dow's average had dropped from 381 down to 198.7. Losses had totaled around $30 billion. Um, now, granted, this technically was considered normal. And I know that sounds really weird, but if you think about the business cycle, there is peaks and troughs. All right, think of it like a, a phone coming out. So you have an iPhone that comes out, all right? They're, make, they're selling all kinds and, you know, big, big money and everything like that. And then you start to see kind of a recession within that iPhone market. People aren't buying new phones anymore. The phone's going down. Everyone has one. There's market saturation. There's other competitors out there. So then the phone goes down and no one's buying that old iPhone anymore. But then... There starts to, there's news articles that come out about Apple is going to come out with a brand new iPhone and this one's going to have even bigger capacity, better uh, battery life. And then um, maybe it comes out and it's like $600. Well, some people buy it, so their stock starts to go up a little bit. But then all of a sudden the price starts to go down a little bit and it's more affordable and there's new packages and you could buy that and it comes with a, uh, you know, a brand new case or something like that. And then all of a sudden people start buying that and then it goes up and then you have another peak. Well, then after a while, you have market saturation. There's new competitors out there. And then all of a sudden, you start to go down to the recession with that product and down to a trough. And then Apple announces a brand new iPhone. So it's just up and down, up and down. I mean, look at the stock market sometime. Um, you know, you look at Apple stock. It goes up and then it goes down and then it goes back up again. And it's, you know, usually it's timed out with the release of different products. Now, the stock market crash did not just affect the people who were involved in the stock market like you would think. It affected the entire economy. And there's kind of eight big reasons as to why everyone was affected by the stock market. All right, first off, risky loans. Remember how the bank was loaning out money? You know, you give me 10%, the bank will give you the rest. All right, 
10% is a very small amount. So the banks had loaned out a lot of money that it probably shouldn't have. And it was loaning out not just money to consumers, which I'll get into in a second, but also to businesses. So say that I go to the to the bank and I said, hey, I got a great idea. I'm going to make a company that sells sandpaper toilet paper. It's going to be huge. Kind of a rough business. Ha! Pun. Sorry. Anyhow, so the bank says, sure, sounds like a good business. Here's some money. All right, so they're giving out high-risk loans to, or, you know, big loans to high-risk businesses, I guess you could say. All right? When the stock market fell apart, those businesses that had borrowed money could no longer repay them. So they lost money to businesses. All right? The consumer borrowed. They had loaned money out for buying on margin. Those people couldn't pay back when they when the stock market crashed. So those 10% loans all of a sudden, boom, they're not getting their money back from there. All right? Now that everyone is kind of freaking out about losing their money, people start to run to the bank and make these things called bank runs where people go to the bank and try to withdraw all of their money. Well, the bank had loaned out a lot of money to consumers who were buying stuff in the stock market and to businesses. So when people ran to get money from the bank, the bank quite literally ran out of money and people actually, like the banks closed during this time. And this caused bank failures. So the banks couldn't, you know, they weren't getting in money from people they had loaned money out to. And all the people that had savings in the banks, which they had loaned out a lot of their savings, had lost all their money too. So um, within a few years, more than 5,500 banks had failed or closed. And remember, the banks had closed. They lost people's money. So people's money was gone. Their savings were wiped out. Uh, by 1933, $9 million in savings had completely vanished. Now, now that people don't have money to buy things with, all right, businesses are closing down uh, because they can't repay loans and all these things, and you know banks can't give out new loans because the banks are failing. All right, we started to see businesses there were cuts in production, so they're no longer producing all the goods because there's no one out there to buy them because no one has a lot of money. Well, when businesses cut production, we see a rise in unemployment, so people don't have jobs. All right, and when jobs, when no one has jobs and no one is making money to buy stuff, we see further cuts in production, and then the circle continues. We're rising unemployment, cuts in production, rising unemployment, cuts in production. So just to give you a little recap of those, it's RCBBSCRF. Wow, what a great way to remember that. Okay, here's my stupid way of remembering those really cute big butt sure can rip farts. So. The risky loans, all right, they had lo banks loan money out to, out to businesses that they shouldn't have, risky loans. Consumer borrowing, consumers borrowed money that they shouldn't have with only 10% down, so the banks are not going to get money from them either. That caused people to run to the banks to get their money out, which caused the banks to fail, all right, which caused savings to be wiped out, which caused businesses to cut production, which caused a rise in unemployment, which caused further cuts in productions. So anyhow, it was just this vicious circle and everyone lost during this time. Now, everyone was fairly poor during this time. There was maybe just uh, you know six people that had lots of money in the United States and everyone else poor. I'm being a little facetious, but it was a very small amount that actually had money. Um, farmers got hit very hard with this. And I'm bringing this up because when we get more into the Great Depression in our upcoming units here, 
the farmer depression is really bad early on here. So wheat went from $1.18 and then by 1932 it was down to 49 cents, less than half. Uh, cotton went from $19 down to 6.5 cents. And a lot of this came from overproduction. Um, the farmers had produced so much, but everyone was buying, so it wasn't a big deal. And now they have too much and no one's buying. That's that whole supply and demand thing. Modern day, the government actually steps in and helps to regulate how much uh, businesses, not so much businesses, but more farmers, how much they produce and what they produce. And the regulation helps to stabilize prices. Um, just to give you a little idea of some other things going on in the economy, by 1932, 12 million people were unemployed. That was a fourth of the workforce, so 20 is actually a little over 25% of the people in America that wanted jobs could not find them. Um, the others that actually did have jobs uh, were either part-time or had wages cut. So the GNP, the gross national product, the total value of goods and services a country produces annually, went from $103 billion in 1929 to $56 billion in 1933, like half. So uh, we're just, we're falling apart at this point. And by the 30s, uh, the interconnectedness of the world, you know, banking, manufacturing, and trade made the, you know, not just our nation vulnerable to the crash, but it actually hurt the rest of the world too. Latin America had depended on the United States for a lot of goods. Europeans depended on the United States for investments and loans. So it wasn't just the United States that felt this depression, it was worldwide because Europe couldn't afford to buy American goods, so no money was coming in from them. The United States felt the crash, but it also spiraled out for everyone else too. And remember, during World War I, the United States had loaned money out to a lot of different countries. So now that we're not doing well, we called in our debts from France and Britain specifically. But because of those trade tariffs we've mentioned earlier, all right, they were so high, so France couldn't really sell, and France and Britain couldn't sell anything to the United States, so they're not making money. So then they went to Germany and said, hey, remember how that you owe us money, that $33 billion in reparations? You need to pay up. Well, Germany was completely wrecked after World War I, so they were kind of depending on the United States for investments, but when the stock market crashed, the United States stopped investing. So bottom line, the United States isn't giving money to Germany. Germany isn't giving money to Britain and France. France and Britain can't give money back to the United States, so the United States can't give any money to uh, Germany, which Germany can't give any money to France and Britain, and Britain can't give that, and France can't give it back to the United States. See how I'm just talking in a circle here? Everything crashed with the stock market, and this was a global recession or global Great Depression. And this is going to go on up until the United States enters World War II. Now, before we get there, we're going to talk about FDR's administration and the Great Depression in the United States and some of the things we did to try to prevent future recessions and future Great Depressions from happening and some of the things that we did to try to lift ourselves out of the Great Depression. But ultimately, it's not until World War II that this stuff really stops and gets fixed and whatnot. So, all right, we are going to stop there for this podcast, and we're going to pick up with the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, and then we're going to get into the New Deal after that. So stay tuned. There's more. Have a wonderful day.